0: Today's reading will be continuing in Acts 1, verses 12 through 26. So 12 to 26, Acts 1. Let's begin, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. acquired a field with a reward for his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his boughs gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Alcadema, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Basabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, it's nice to see who the faithful are this morning. <laughs> you all braved the weather, and you've just got another star on your crown, I guess. Um, well, what a week. And uh, while we will miss Al George greatly, we rejoice. He's, his first Sunday is with the Lord, right? And what a day. We were singing those songs of just a reminder there's uh, life beyond this grave. And uh, what a day when we'll be reunited with all those who've gone before us who knew Christ and ultimately, of course, with our Savior. So let's pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you that you are the sovereign one who reigns over all. You are the author of life, Lord, that you are victorious through your son over death and that we, while we might mourn, we don't mourn without hope because we know that those who've placed their faith in you like our in your presence this very day, and we rejoice in that. Lord, uh, as was prayed earlier, we have many in our congregation who are hurting physically, those that are struggling because of wayward children, etc. Lord, as we come to the text, it's easy to to let our minds wander, and I just pray, Lord, as we go to your word, that you would... uh, Speak to us, and as you've promised through these precious words, and allow us to focus on what you have, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're just joining us this morning, we are moving through the book of Acts. We had selected this text several months ago for the preaching series, and we're moving verse by verse. And as we looked at last week, as we were observing uh, the book of Acts, and I will get my slide on, sorry, is Acts 1 through 8. It serves as the key verse to the book. And you are to be my witnesses, the Lord says to the disciples, both here in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the uttermost parts. That's why one scholar calls Acts 1, 8 is the table of contents. It lays out the progression of the book, and we indicated that the purpose of the book of Acts is to demonstrate that no one is able to hinder the victorious march of the gospel. Nothing's going to hinder it. And you end this book rather oddly, not in chapter 29, but chapter 28. <laughs> I misspoke last week. You, you wind up with Paul in prison in Rome, and you're going, wow, that's, that's kind of a bummer of a way to end this book. No, because it's not about Paul, it's not about Peter. In fact, the, to title this book, The Book of Acts of the Apostles, is really wrong. It's, it, it's, the, the, it's the work of the Spirit moving through the body of believers so that the gospel would go forth. And so we get to verse 12 here, and it states in chapter 1, Acts 1, 12, they, that is these disciples who were there when Christ ascended, just in a few verses before, return to Jerusalem. And it says from the mountain called the Mount of Olives. <clears throat> I wish we could go there today, right now. I would take you. You know, you go across the Kidron Valley from the Temple Mount area, uh, down about 70 feet, and over to the Mount of Olives, which overlooks the city. If you've been to Jerusalem on a tour, that no doubt you've stood on the Mount of Olives, looked over into Jerusalem, and took plenty of pictures as uh, someone was trying to sell you other photos and rides on camels. But anyway, <clears throat> the Mount of Olives is, is the location where Christ has ascended. We saw that earlier. And so it draws us in in understanding this is important. We're told that it was near Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey. He's not talking about a 24-hour period where you could make several miles. No, a Sabbath was a restricted day in the Jewish calendar the holy day, on Saturday, and that is that you were not allowed to work. That's true even today. If you go to Jerusalem and you stay at a rather orthodox hotel, they will have a Shabbat, what they call Sabbath elevator. It only goes one floor at a time, so you're not working. Do not get in that elevator. You'll be there forever, and you'll miss the tour bus. But a Sabbath day's journey, work of any kind, including medical treatment, was forbidden and so you're only allowed to walk so far so what it tells us is we're talking about half a mile to three quarters of a mile which would make sense because if you go on the mount of olives you go down the kidron valley go back up into the, the the what today the old city the upper room there is located in the jewish quarter in the christian quarter in that vicinity and that would have been the area but it's significant here in the greek because it tells us they went to this room, look at verse 13, they entered Jerusalem, they went to the upstairs room. It's the room, which tells us, most likely, this is the, the room where they had the Last Supper, where Christ instructed his disciples. It's the room where Christ, the risen Christ, will appear. So it's a significant room. It's probably owned, later we'll see, you can see this, but it's probably owned by John Mark and his family, they are the ones who own this upper room, which tells us they're affluent to have a room this size. It says they have gathered, and notice in verse 13, we have the motley crew, right? We've got Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and the names go on. It's interesting, there are four accounts of the apostles in the Gospels and in Acts. I've selected Matthew and Luke, so you can see this in comparison to the book of Acts. There's something very significant going on in this list. Obviously, Judas is missing in Acts 1. But if you were to divvy these up, there are three names that occur in the same spot in all of the list. Peter is always mentioned first. It should not surprise us. Apart from Jesus, he's the most frequently referred to name in the New Testament. We also have in the fifth spot, you'll see there on the list, is Philip. And on the last is James, the son of Alphaeus. Most scholars believe the disciples were broken into groups. There's some really interesting leadership concepts we won't go into today. But the disciples were broken into groups. And these were the the leaders of each subset within the 12. And as you know, the, the, the top list are the ones that were privy to several things that the rest of the disciples didn't get to see. And it's interesting, in this list, ...that we see from the book of Acts, we see that John's name is brought to the top. So you've got Peter, John, and James. They'll be the three apostles that are mentioned, and they're the only three out of the 11 that will be mentioned later on in the book of Acts. So they play a key role in the establishment of the church, not that, that the others don't, but they're the ones that will be highlighted as we move through. And so you want to watch that as we time begin, progresses. And obviously Peter's going to play a key role here and we'll look at that in a minute. So th- this is the list of the 12, well, now 11, and that's what needs to, what needs to be addressed here in the narrative. So it gets to verse 14. And all these continued together in prayer with one mind. This is significant. Here is a group of 11 in particular, the apostles. But we're going to see as well Dr. Luke tells us not it wasn't just them. In fact, later on he's going to say there was 120 verse 15, but it counted among them in verse 14 we see that there are women as well. That's key. That takes us back to the crucifixion with women at the cross as well as at the empty tomb. Along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. But we're told in the text they're of one mind. They're of one accord. In fact, there's two terms used here of piety and unity. It's a common phrase throughout the book of Acts. In the establishment of the church, despite the persecution, despite sin in the camp that has to be dealt with, The church is unified. And I I want you to watch that as we move through the book of Acts. And it's seen and stressed throughout the rest of the New Testament. Ephesians 4. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, and one baptism. And so these 120 have gathered uh, some have argued they're on the stairwell and, and uh, hanging outside the windows to get 120 into a room, but they have gathered, gathered here. And uh, we see here as well, again, family members, because it's not just Mary, but also Jesus' brothers. And we're not referring to here of cousins or foster brothers. The, these are uh, offspring of Mary. And Remember, this is significant because in John 7, early in Jesus' ministry, Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. But after the resurrection, they recognized that he is the one. You know, you look at this text. Here they are gathered. No one is arguing who is the greatest. Remember, that was what was argued before. (laughs) Who's going to take over now that Jesus is gone? You don't see that. And, And 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 certainly there's those who could say, hey, I I bring significance to the table. Mary could say, hey, I brought this Jesus into the world. None of you did, right? Or it could be John who, who stood by Jesus at the cross. Nor is anyone blaming each other for denying Christ. Mary's not questioning why the disciples deserted her son. Or are the disciples scolding one another? Well, you should have really been working with Judas and we wouldn't have had this problem. You you don't see any of that. They're they're united. They're looking to what the Lord might have. And and it's not, again, not just a few. It's 120 according to verse 15. And notice what else is key here. They're in prayer with one mind. That is so key. Every book, every chapter of this book, and I mentioned this last week, will show the effect of prayer or it will mention prayer by name. It's key. It's key. To this book. In fact, we're going to see it mentioned twice just in this brief passage that we're looking at. John Bunyan, in his book, The Pilgrim's Progress, says, Prayer is a shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge to Satan. (laughs) They've gathered in prayer. and, And the first takeaway there in your notes, if you're following along, is prayer is the means by which God's wisdom, power, and purpose are woven together in our lives so that we might glorify him. Colossians 4 states, Continue steadfast in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may be opening a door to the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, Paul writes. Joining in prayer with one another rallies us together around the presence of our Lord that's vital it was vital to the early church here as they were looking to what's the next step remember christ stated i'm going i'm going to send you a comforter he's going to instruct you're to wait here in jerusalem which is 10 days and this is transpiring well peter stands up and of course peter is our type a personality he's the bigger than life, and sometimes he got his foot in his mouth, but he's got this one correct. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a gathering of, again, about 120, and he said, brothers, sisters, the scriptures have to be fulfilled that the Holy Spirit foretold through David concerning Judas. Uh, it's interesting, 120, by the way, uh, that was what was required for the Jewish religious body, uh, ruling body, the Sanhedrin. It required 120. Some see this as symbolic of this is the leadership or the the authority of, of the church as they go forth. But in 16 and 17, verse 16 in particular, there's a phrase that I don't know about you, but I about fell out of my chair every time I read it. It states, notice the text, it had to be fulfilled. Fulfilled? I mean, this entire situation with Judas just stinks. What do you mean had to be fulfilled? As Keener notes in his commentary on Acts, he says, most ancients regarded with disgust traitors against their own people. Such behavior was worthy of death and invited the hatred of even one's own family members. Well, undoubtedly, I mean, think about it. It's a great embarrassment. Judas, one of the 12. Now, he's not even one of the 70. One of the 12. Worse yet, he was probably one of the most trusted. Certainly, he's the one held the purse strings. Remember, he was the treasurer. disciples had no idea it was him. In fact, they couldn't figure out who was going to be the traitor. And Judas' betrayal of Jesus was the most heinous sin, I would argue, in the history of the world. Not that the consequence was huge, that the God in the flesh is betrayed by one of his own followers. And yet, what does Luke state? It was fulfilled that the Holy Spirit foretold through David. In other words, it indicates, and Luke is clear here, he uses a particular term in the Greek to say this is a necessity. It was God's cosmic plan. And we're going to see here, as Peter will cite from two texts in the Psalms, it shows that Jesus' death and the betrayal by one of the 12 was not outside of God's awareness. Wow. Either we believe the Lord is in charge over all things, or we do not. And when the world comes crashing down and things make no sense, we run to the Lord for wisdom, correct? What does James 1 say? And similar to Joseph... We understand that sometimes individuals might mean it for evil, but God is using the events to fulfill his plan. Hmm. Related to God's sovereign hand, this past week, I, on Thursday, had the opportunity to be with Kyle, Harvey, and the family. Kyle's picked up pneumonia now, as you all most know. He's 42, (coughs) struggling with cancer brain tumor, two wee ones, and then I went and saw Al George, who was laying unresponsive and read scripture, prayed with him, told him I loved him, and said, I'll join you at the marriage feast if God should restore your life here on earth, and I, you owe me a tie dinner, uh, but uh, I love you, and after that, I... Just thinking through our so many who are struggling physically in our church, and I did something I don't normally do. I, I went to the chapel at the hospital, and I just sat there and wept. I thought, it's a good thing no one came and said, do you need a minister? <laughs> 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 yeah, I probably do. As reminded of the words, the second verse of Be Still My Soul. Be still my soul, thou, thy, thy God doth undertake To guide the future as he has the past. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still my soul. The waves and the winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. (laughs) That's our God, right? He is the one who is sovereign. And here the text makes it very clear this was fulfilled. And you say, how? Because Judas' betrayal of Jesus was all part of God's plan. Matthew stated, the stones that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. And Matthew 27 states the fulfillment of what the prophet Jeremiah had predicted. John Piper, in his book, Spectacular Sins, Writes, the father's plan for his son Jesus would be rejection, hatred, abandonment, betrayal, denial, condemnation. you will be flogged, mocked, pierced, spat upon, killed. All these were explicit in God's mind. These things did not just happen. They were forbidden or foretold in God's word. God knew that he would have and could have planned to stop them, but he didn't. So they happened according to his sovereign will, his plan. Wow. He's right. The betrayal of Jesus and the death on the cross was not divine child abuse. Rather, in the midst of all the evil and the unexplainable activity of one who was in the inner circle, we come to the cross and we fall on our knees before a loving God who sacrificed his own son for our transgressions and our sin. As Jesus noted, going to the cross, not my will, but your will, O Father. And here is these rag-a-tag-muffin group of guys and gals gathered in an upper room trying to figure this all out. The guy they followed, they hung their hat on, has been now ascended into heaven. They're trying to figure this all out. And, And I love Peter. He says, hey, God's in charge. This was all planned. It's a good thing they had the 40 days in between God, <laughs> when he rose from the dead and when Christ ascended. Because they needed to, to work through a few details. And it says, He notice what Peter goes on to say. He was counted as one of us and received a share in the ministry. Don't miss this. They're not replacing Judas because he croaked. They're replacing Judas because he fell into apostasy. That is, he fell away from the truth. Remember, Luke twenty-two. Satan filled Jesus, or excuse me, filled Judas's heart. Let me get that right. In other words, Judas suicide. Hear me out. Is not what condemned to a Christless eternity. If we know Christ is our Savior, we're safe in the palm of His hands. And the individual who takes his life, who knows the Lord, like my cousin did at age twenty-four. The Father says, welcome home. This is not what the plan was, but welcome home. Because we belong to Him. But for Judas here, his suicide is not what condemned him. It's his decision never to embrace the Savior and to repent of his sin. That was the problem. We'll get to this in a minute. But we're told that Judas was remorseful for what happened. It was Peter. We're told he repented. They're two very vastly terms, and they are key. Well, 18 and 19 is that parenthetical statement that Peter makes. It's... It 's what I love when I watch a movie i 've shared this before. I love hitting the pause button and then asking what 's going on drives the family nuts. But for me, I just have to know well, who is she i don 't remember her earlier in the movie don 't hit the pause button, right? Well, this is the pause button because we need to figure out, wait a minute, who is Judas? Oh, he was the man that acquired a field with you know and he tells us unjust deed. You read this and if you 're somewhat astute with the old or excuse me the new testament Matthew 27 gives us an account and they don't seem to coincide and this is where some scholars will say ah there it is there's problems with the historicity of the text or the accuracy of the text So I want to address this because Matthew 27 states that when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders saying, I have sinned, betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is this to us? See to it yourself. And Judas throws the money at the priest. Feet. And it says in the text, he went and hanged himself, but the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it's not lawful for us to put it in the treasure. How nice. <laughs> Bless their pointed little heads, right? Uh, now you have some integrity. He says, well, uh, it's blood money. So they bought with this money the potter's field as a burial place for strangers, and it was called the Field of Blood. So you hear this in Matthew 27, and you look at the text in Acts, and go, wait a minute, Hoffman, there's some, there's some discrepancies here, or at least appears to be. Well, first of all, you, if you look at Matthew's context, he's, he's very clear, he's trying to, to show, the, well, he highlights the fulfillment of Zechariah. Uh, 11, with a reference to 30 uh, pieces of silver. He's trying to show that this is the fulfillment. Matthew is a Jew writing to Jews. Luke's a Gentile writing to a Gentile. The priest who took the money technically are buying it on behalf of Judas. So the two coincide. Matthew's words for, again, for Judas, which I mentioned before, is not of a repentance. The word is remorseful. He's sorry he got caught. It's different than saying, hey, I wish, you know, I, I, Lord, I, I should have never done this. That, no, 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 that's not the issue. <laughs> he is a traitor, and both have highlighted this. Matthew tells us that he hangs himself, and what does Luke tell us here in the text? Look what it says here in verse 18. He fell headfirst and burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed, gushed out. And I hope you are not eating lunch anytime soon. By the way, Luke is very vivid on those who oppose the gospel. Read, we'll get to Herod Agrippa later on, who dies a very horrific death. Why? Because he's opposing the gospel. Ananias and Sapphira, that's, that's a bummer. Um, they, get, they are struck dead. It, it, it's a way of saying to the reader here for Acts and highlighting, this gospel's going forth. Do not stand in its way. But let's back up. It's very likely that, that uh it, it, it happens that uh we know that probably Judas did hang himself, the text tells us, and then the rope. I mean, we, we, there's easy ways to explain this. The rope, the limb could have broken. Someone could have cut down the, the rope and the body fell down the cliff and was gushed. There, there's a variety of ways that these things could easily be explained. I would argue The burden of proof is to, to show that it's wrong, not to assume that it's wrong. So we see here these details that I think could easily be explained. And the sadness, though, that comes with this and the reality of you will not stand in the way of the Lord. And then you have the fulfillment that Peter brings in verse 20. He cites two different Psalms. In both of the Psalms, if you look at the context, we've talked about this. If you see an Old Testament text, you want to go back and look at the context, it's clear it's one of the righteous being justified and, and the and because they're being pursued by the wicked and the judgment on the wicked. Psalm 69, 25, the first one that's cited here, is speaking of the camp of the unrighteous being desolate that no more does anyone dwell. And, and again, I think Matthew is making it very clear about this Judas. Psalm 109, may his days be few, may another take his office. What is Judas forfeiting? And scholars debate here, but I think the text is pretty clear based on the two Psalms. What he's giving up is his office. The privilege And all that came with being one of the twelve. And Judas serves as the ultimate example of the oppression of the righteous. And who is the par excellence of righteousness? Christ. He is the one who pursued. And he is the one, Judas, that went after the one who is truly righteous. And so he forfeits his rights as an apostle. Just a side note. But you see the value of Scripture to the early church, don't you? An understanding that this is God's Word, that it is inspired, that the Holy Spirit spoke through David. I mean, there's a lot here that we could could go down that rabbit trail. We won't this morning, but it's significant. This leads to a second takeaway there in your notes, but unconfessed sin, catch this, does not undo God's plan. But it does forfeit the opportunity to participate in the Lord's work. Judas was remorseful, but he never repented. Ultimately, Judas, by the way, is responsible. No one else for his evil deeds. Oh, yes, it's all part of God's plan. But Judas is still held responsible. Judas can't blame Satan even. Can't blame his upbringing. He can't blame the other 11 and say, well, you know, they really didn't like me very well. No, mm -mm, that doesn't work. Judas was remorseful but never repented, but God's plan moved forward. In other words, God's plan is not contingent upon our decisions, whether they're good or bad. He does not need us. (laughs) He doesn't. He's graciously using us for his glory here on earth, but he doesn't need us. Judas was remorseful but never repented as Peter did. And thus again, Judas forfeited the opportunity to participate in the Lord's work. What a bummer that Judas wasn't there to watch Christ ascend. What a bummer that he didn't see the early church and all that God did. What a bummer that he wasn't there when the Spirit came. He missed out on all of this. One pastor writes, failure to repent simply displays a heart greater in love with its sin than in its love with its Savior. Hmm. Well, Peter delivers the text and he says, thus one of the men who have accompanied us during the entire time of Jesus' ministry. Notice he says from the, the time Jesus was baptized By John the Baptist to the time Jesus ascended, this is the person that we need. And they narrowed it down to two names. So they proposed two candidates, as you see in verse 23. Joseph, Barsabbas, which means son of the Sabbath. Interesting. He goes by Johnny, or Justice, sorry. All right. And Matthias, which means gift of God. Church tradition states that he will die as a martyr in Ethiopia uh, later in the early church. But these are men, they probably would have been counted among the 70 that were sent out. They were privy to much as they followed Christ's ministry. And notice here, in verse 24, it says, and they prayed again. Second time, Scripture is used, prayer is used. Both are essential in guiding the apostles' movement but I love the next line, verse 24. It says, Lord, you know the hearts of all. The phrase speaks of God's omniscience, that is, he's all-knowing. But he is the one who searches the heart. Psalm 7, oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous. You who test the minds and hearts, O oh, righteous God. And so in verse 25, it says they're looking for someone who will be an apostle, that is, one who is sent out, who is commissioned to testify to the Lord Jesus Christ, in particular the resurrection, as is highlighted. It says, from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. How ironic. <laughs> the disciples left their place, that is, their property, ship, the, the fishing boat, etc., right? For some. The, the tax collector's table, to follow the Lord. Judas sought his own, and he loses everything. <laughs> Verse 26, they then cast lots. Now, this is where people will break out in a rash. What in the world? Uh, is this normative for the church today? Should we be casting lots? Um, in the Old Testament, and even up through the New, it was a way of indicating what God had, had decided, casting of lots, was a it could be done with a piece of potsherd or a dice or whatever, but as a way of determining what the Lord was doing. Lots were, for instance, Zechariah, it was how he determined that it was his opportunity to serve in the temple back in Luke chapter 1, Proverbs 16 states, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Remember, the disciples were seeking, who does God have as replacement? Through wisdom, through guidance, they narrowed it down to two, but which of these two? And with the coming of the Spirit, I would argue, lots ceased to be used by the followers of Christ. You won't see it later in Acts or in the New Testament. And this leads us with the last takeaway, and that is the Lord is not playing hide-and-seek with His will, (laughs) He has promised to reveal his will to those who walk in obedience. I know you try to describe the will of God, and it's almost like an ant that's crawling across the Sistine Chapel, across the frescoes. And they see maybe some hues, and you might see some, I don't know, beautiful colors. You might even make out, oh, that's a finger, as an ant. The problem is you don't see the other nine frescoes there on the ceiling that's about 118 feet that depicts the creation, Genesis account. You you don't see all of this. And so how is it that we discern the will of God? Well, there are three prerequisites, and I think you could see that here in Acts 1, and that is, one, you have to be a follower of Christ. John 10, only, Jesus states, my sheep hear my voice. No one else. So you have to be a follower of Christ. You, you also have to act on what you understand. And that's, that's through being in the word of God and through prayer, which we see here with these, these followers. And be willing to accept what you know. And that's exactly what happens, right? And so they counted Matthias. So he was counted with the 11 apostles. Let me give you some guidance in in discerning the will of God. And that is, number one, to understand the clear teachings of the word of God. Be in the word. Secondly, is to establish convictions born of prayer. Walking in prayer will stir up your passions in accordance with the Lord. It's as if as you spend time with him, your desires become his desires. Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him. And what? He he will direct your path. And so there's there's being in the Word. There's established convictions through prayer. A third area is to listen to the counsel of mature believers. And the last is to obey. There may not be a subjective confirmation. You may not see a cloud formation that spells the word go. Right? (coughs) We joke about that, but... Um, following God's will may not be free of stress and problems in fact I would argue it probably will be because Satan doesn't want you to follow in the way of the Lord and at times it will defy all logic think about Abram and Sarah told to go from Ur a city with running water in the ancient world to where? oh that's right you didn't tell us you're just going to lead. But in so doing, we act in faith through obedience based upon the deep convictions rooted in God's promises and in his leading. Elizabeth Elliot, many of you know her. She was the widow of Jim Elliot, along with he and along with some of his colleagues who attempted to share Christ with the Akka Indians were killed. She wrote a book entitled, A Path Through Suffering. And she writes, Open hands should characterize the soul's attitude toward God. Open to receive what he wants to give. Open to give back what he wants to take. Acceptance of the will of God means relinquishing our own. If our hands are full of our own plans, there isn't room to receive his. Wow. Wow. The disciples in that upper room, when someone has just yanked the rug from out under them, they turn to the Lord in prayer, they go to the scriptures, and they are of one mind as they trust in the Lord's leading. What comfort in knowing that the Lord knows what He's doing. And while we may not able to solve the world's problems. We'll mourn the loss of loved ones, we'll experience the effects of sin, we may experience betrayal, we have the glorious opportunity here in the word to come to him in prayer and allow him to lead. I wrote, what comfort to know he forgives, he draws us into his presence, he empowers us with his spirit, he allows us to participate in his work on this globe for his glory and he promises eternal life what more could we ask and so let's pray father we come to you and we are so grateful that indeed you lead us we see that here in acts one with the disciples when the world is just spinning out of control they are confused they've been given instruction But what steps to take, Lord, they come to, again, a recognition. You are the sovereign one. You're in charge. You know the hearts. You're not abandoning us. And, Lord, you're leading. And so they value the importance of prayer. They value the importance of the word. And, Lord, may that be said of us as a body of believers. Lord, we turn to you and we thank you for your sovereignty in our lives, your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.